I'm just going to start recording, by the way, just okay. because we've kind of been talking for a while, and I just feel like, because um, some some episodes I start with an introduction, but other episodes it's like we're just talking. I'll just press record. We'll just okay. kind of start. Um, but no, let's let's keep going, and then we'll kind of introduce ourselves throughout. Okay, that sounds good to me. Yeah. No, you're <laughs> saying about like the kind of if you say anything that's, let's say, kind of moving away from a certain current understanding of anti-racism, you're just kind of labeled conservative, right? And yeah, it's strange because when I go back to Stuart Hall's work, I'm like, you you couldn't teach this today, even though he was on the cultural vanguard in the 90s and 80s, talking about the absurdities of race and how it's all kind of hybridity and everything's pretty much hybrid. But man, if you were to bring that in today into any classroom or any venue, it would just be dismissed as like, no, that's right wing. I don't, I don't think Hall understood it as right wing. And I don't think any of his readers understood it as right wing. I don't understand it as right wing. It's actually going to be part of my creolization class. uh, At least a couple of his essays will be. Um, yeah, I, and, and to me, that labeling as right wing or conservative or Republican by extension is just an, a way for people to dismiss what's being said. Um, and in that dismissal, there's little effort to work to understand what's being said, right? And really work to grapple with the ideas that are being expressed. Yeah. Um, and it's an unfortunate side effect of how our society operates. Um, I, tr- I, I try to avoid saying outright where I stand on this sort of spectrum of conservative, liberal, et cetera. Because sure. um, it's a distraction. Oh, it's 100%. Like, it doesn't matter where I stand. And if you as a listener or reader of my work is conservative, then you might dismiss what I'm saying if I identify myself as more liberal. And if you are liberal and I say I'm conservative, you're going to, it's a quagmire. And if I say yeah. I'm independent, then it's almost as if the independent sphere doesn't exist in our world because we like things to be black and white, very clear, very straightforward. Yeah. It, well, it, it really doesn't. I mean, so like one of the areas where I have very mixed thoughts is on this beast that we call critical race theory. Now, unlike a lot of folks, I think I've read, actual critical race theorists. I've read actual anti-critical race theorists. I take them both seriously. Like I just read uh, Randall Kennedy has a new book of essays where he, um, he was kind of a moderate when it came to critical race theory. He and Derek Bell were very close, but he always kept his distance. And I feel like really in both with both sides, it's, there's always this way to dismiss the other. That means we don't have to engage with them. So for critical race theorists, it's, if you disagree with this, it's internalized racism or it's racism itself. Therefore, we don't have to think about your ideas because they're just tarnished already. And then for the anti, it's, well, you're obviously just um, kind of an indoctrinated, you know, Marxist who can't really think straight. So we don't have to think about what you're saying because, you know, and it's really frustrating because it's just a recipe for non-engagement. It's 100%. the absolute recipe. Yeah. But, well, we should just kind of, I guess, introduce a little bit of kind of why we're here and where we're going. Um, 
So I'm Kevin Curry Knight, teaching associate professor, at East Carolina University College of Education. Uh, I help, uh, I guess I co-host a podcast called Sophia on the Electric Agora Network, theelectricagora.com. And you are? I'm Dr. Sheena Mason. I'm an assistant professor at SUNY Oneonta, and I teach everything African-American, Caribbean, American literature. Cool. And the reason we kind of uh, linked up was because I had seen you on Brittany King's podcast talking about an idea of, of racelessness that you used as part of your dissertation and as part of a forthcoming book that, that you're writing. Um, and then I kind of, I guess I responded to some comments on the YouTube section and I mentioned this author named George Schuyler. It's like, I wonder if what you're saying is sounds kind of similar to, to something Schuyler would have said. You're like, I love George Schuyler. So we just decided we would have a podcast conversation about racelessness and this author uh, in the early 20th century named George Schuyler. Um, so we'll talk about racelessness and we'll talk, get into kind of Schuyler's work. And for listeners who don't know who Schuyler is, we'll kind of get into who he is and why you should read him. And for readers, listeners who do know his work, hopefully there are some, um, this will give you some interesting food for thought because we're both fans. And, and, uh, but like we were talking about with the podcast before the podcast, George Schuyler is not a guy who's generally well-known. Um, people either have maybe not heard of him or maybe have heard of him and, and probably heard his name brought up with contempt. So he was a, a, a black American writer, though he would hate me introducing himself, him that way. Um, in the early 20th century, whose favorite thing in the world was to make fun of lampoon and satirize the idea of race. And he did it so much that he found himself falling out of favor with many black intellectuals at the time, including W.E.B. Du Bois, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. Um, and it's hard to rub those folks the wrong way and be taken <laughs> seriously. So by the end of his life, he was giving small talks, usually to conservative audiences. Um, anyway, be that as it may, anything that we should add about Skylar before we get into racelessness and what that might, and what that might mean? Um, I think that's sufficient of an introduction. Cool. Definitely a fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I was, I, I guess one thing to add or to consider is he, he, sort of rose to prominence during the Harlem Renaissance and um, then quickly <laughs> declined and went in the sort of opposite direction because he rubbed Du Bois the wrong way and also Langston Hughes. And you don't want to be on the bad side of those folks who are also participating very intently in the Harlem Renaissance. And yeah. I think because of that fact and because his, his views were so conservative and um, controversial, his writings, for the most part, went out of print, with the one exception of Black No More, which is um, the one fictional book which I was easily able to get my hands on. But the other manuscripts, not so much. You have to do some traveling, probably, and some um, scanning to actually get your hands on his other writings. Yeah, yeah. I actually have one of those other writings up on my bookshelf, and I'm going to scan it in um, at some point when I have the time, because you're right. They're just, they're impossible to find, even though they're, they're kind of gems. Mm -hmm. Let's get into, uh, before we talk about George Schuyler anymore, let's get into the idea that kind of formed your dissertation, um, an idea you champion of racelessness. So 
what is racelessness? And then we'll get into kind of how it fits with other views of race that are floating in the air. So I'm the president and co-founder of an educational consulting business called Theory of Racelessness. Racelessness, the term itself, speaks to two philosophical positions. A lesser known fact is that there are philosophies of race. There's an entire discipline on ideas of race. There are six philosophies altogether. Three speak to what a person thinks race is, and three speak to what a person thinks should be done with race. So the first uh, position, which I think is lesser held today, but still the ideas of this philosophy are still promoted in problematic ways, and that's naturalism. If you are a naturalist, you believe that race is biological, that in some way, shape, or form, human beings are divided into subcategories. Um, that has been disproven for over a century. However, there's a way in which how we talk about race in, a, in the American context these days reflect this sort of naturalist idea of race. Then one can be a, re, a constructionist. A constructionist believed that race, although not of nature, although not biological, still manifests itself in very real ways, kind of in in the kind of in the vein of how we view gender as a social construction. And then one can be a skeptic. Skepticism is the first part of my theory of racelessness. Skeptics argue that race is not biological and it's also not a social construction. The thing that people point to and say this is race or this is racial is actually being mistaken as race or racial, and it's something else. It's either racism hiding its face or its culture, its ethnicity, its nationality. It's everything except what's being identified as race or racial. And then in terms of the three categories that speak to what a person thinks should be done with race, there's reconstructionism. I feel like that's the default position in American society. We're kind of trained in a lot of ways to be reconstructionists. Reconstructionists tend to be constructionists, and they say, okay, because race manifests itself in the ways that it does, which includes the violence of racism, we can reconstruct the idea of race to be more positive. Uh, some popular examples of this effort to reconstruct would be Black Lives Matter, Black Excellence, Black Girl Magic, Black Boy Joy. This is an intentional mm -hmm. effort to reconstruct the idea of a racial category that is blackness into something that is more positive than racism would have us believe. It's also, I mean, it probably also has some history with, um, I think probably Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers, it would probably be fair to say if, if you read their texts, they were reconstructionists. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then also conservationism. So conservationists tend to be naturalists because after all, how can you reconstruct or eliminate something that's in nature? Uh, and then also the last category, which speaks to the second meaning of racelessness is eliminativism. So eliminativists tend to be skeptics or social constructionists. And ultimately they conclude that for whatever reason, the idea of race should be done away with. I am a skeptical eliminativist and my theory of racelessness speaks to racelessness in the sense that people are already raceless, skepticism, <laughs> and right. that uh, recognizing that many people treat race as a social construction, we need to eliminate the idea still 
to actually achieve the racelessness that coincidentally already exists. And in that way, we're striving for racelessness and it's a sort of ambitious end goal, if you will. So right. the idea of racelessness encompasses those two philosophies. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So the big challenge then, I think we've established reconstructionism of some sort or other is probably the dominant position today. And I guess the big challenge will go something like this. Okay. So let's say that you convince yourself, other people that race really is a fiction and you advocate kind of the elimination of it. Well, you can't control what other people are going to do. And if other people don't eliminate it with you, you will be racialized. So what good does it do to say race doesn't exist if everyone else around you sees you as white, black, etc.? Um, I think Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's probably another um, kind of fellow traveler in the kind of race abolitionist category, says race is almost like a game theory sort of thing. Everyone wants to opt out of it, or I will say most people want to opt out of it. But as long as everyone else thinks that everyone else isn't going to opt out of it, you stay in it. So everyone wants to opt out, but everyone thinks that everyone else is, is staying in. So you have to stay in too, <laughs> right? So how do you, um, how would the idea of racelessness, as you're describing it, deal with something like that? So my biggest um, contention is that racism exists, race does not. Racism is what ultimately creates race. So when I'm able to help people understand that clear distinction, um, it, it helps to enlighten why we are racialized in two ways. We're racialized by society, largely because of the existence and perpetuation of racism or racist ideas, and we're racialized by ourselves. Now, I can choose to embrace my own agency and power and not racialize myself just because society is doing that thing to me, right? And sometimes there's a way in which society racializes me in a different way from how I racialize myself, right? And that discrepancy wouldn't cause me to then change how I racialize myself to coincide with how society racializes me. We, are, we tend to be racialized in ways that feel very personal when it comes from oneself. Um, and so when you're able to distinguish that racism creates race, that where we see race or that which is racial, it's actually racism hiding its face, it becomes an easier sell <laughs> that the ultimate goal should be to eliminate race because all we're talking about is eliminating the violence of it. And we needn't have 100% of society agree with that position and stop racialization 100% of the way, hmm. because mm -hmm. that's unlikely. We're unlikely to get human beings to agree 100% on anything, much less this hot topic, right? right. So helping people also understand that it's not a zero sum game. It's just a matter of getting the statistical majority to see the light, to stop racializing themselves and by extension, stop racializing other people, remove the violence of racism. And I think we're closer to that statistical reality than, than to the, to the hmm. hope of reconstructing race to be a positive thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, 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 I can hear someone like Ibram X. Kendi vehemently disagreeing on that part. Like, um, 
I think he 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 would say that racelessness. Well, he, let me get, let me give you a quote that came to mind from Kendi's book, and let let me see what I could give my response. I'd like to hear your response too. So, here's what Kendi says, and I can imagine him looking at you directly and and saying this directly to you in his book, How to Be an Anti Racist. He says, "Singular race makers push for the end of categorizing and identifying by race." They wag their fingers at people like me identifying as black, but the unfortunate truth is that their well-meaning post-racial strategy makes no sense in our racist world. Race is a mirage, but one thing that humanity has organized itself around in very real ways, imagining an exi- in the existence of race in a racist world as, uh, conserv- as, is as conserving and harmful as, as imagining away classes in a capitalist world. It allows the ruling races and classes to keep ruling. So I can give my response to it, but I I don't, I mean, I'm racialized in a way that probably doesn't give me much cultural capital here. Um, So I I don't know what your response to that would be, but I, I feel like he's referring to a similar sort of game theory situation, but now he's saying, and refusing to racialize yourself in the way that others are inevitably going to racialize you and refusing to, to say that race is real basically takes away your power, but it leaves their power. Yeah. So that exact quote, I should have known that's the quote you were going to call on. Did, today. did, did, did you pencil that into? I'm it's sure in, you probably it's in a version of my current, uh, for my forthcoming book. Yeah. So, and it's, it's the part, there are a few parts of his book that I, um, content with but it's the part of his book where i'm just shaking my head uh because again this idea that one has to subscribe to the violence that society inflicts onto them in order to solve the violence is it just rings so ironic to me um it takes away people's actual power and agency um, at the end of the day, the policies, the laws, the government of the land reflect the beliefs of its people. So this idea that the statistical majority can cannot take their own power in the ways that I'm um, advocating for and turn the tides to lessen, if not eliminate the violence of racism altogether, to me is a non-starter because one can also be part of the thing that they're working to dismantle. My mentor from Howard University is a social constructionist eliminativist. So one needn't actually agree with my skepticism to agree that eliminating that concept of race is ultimately for the betterment of society. You can operate within a category, any racialized category, you can operate within racialization of blackness and you can accept it and you can privilege it and you can elevate it while still working to destroy the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, um, it's always interesting to me how people often the question I get is how practical or impractical this idea of eliminativism is in society. And I point to the fact that what Kendi is ignoring is the history of constant reconstruction that the idea of race has been in since the conception Mm. of the word race. We're talking centuries and centuries and centuries, right? And the word race hasn't always meant what it means today. And yet 
I think inevitably, if we look at the trajectory of this reconstruction, it is going to be reconstructed into being eliminated. And I think that that is a more practical goal than trying to take the violence out of the idea itself, because since its conception, the idea has enacted some form of caste class violence onto the societies it's been used to describe. Right. Yeah. Um, So, well, so I think social constructionists would probably say, or uh, reconstructionists, and I'm not one, so I have to put words in their mouth, but they would probably say something like, um, how do I say it? They would say that just if something is a social construction, um, there are instances where we have reconstructed things that had one meaning to go fully in another direction, right? So just because something has a certain history doesn't mean that we need to keep it with that history. It doesn't mean we need to associate it with that history always in the future. So like the, the example I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of examples where we know that something has a certain origin and we've successfully detached the origin from the thing. And it sounds lame, but the example that I thought most accurately reflects would either be money or desktops um, on a computer. I'll go with desktops. When computers were created, people were used to physical spaces. So in order to signal that this is your workspace on the computer, we called it your desktop because we wanted to get people used to saying, oh, just like I work on my physical desktop, I work on my virtual desktop. Kids today have no idea what it is to work on a physical desktop, but they still call that thing that opens up on their computer a desktop. So the word desktop has completely detached its meaning right from that previous thing, the physical desktop. But no one seems to care. Like, whereas the skeptical position would be like, well, we know it's not a physical desktop, therefore we should call it something different. And I think the social constructivists would be like, no, we can just detach the meaning. So why can't we do that with something like race? Why can't we wash the funk off of that word, so to speak? (laughs) If we could, I would argue that we would have already. If we are still finding ourselves in 2021 with people having to use the refrain of I'm human too, I am a person, I am a human being, I matter, my life matters, my family's lives matter. If we are still saying that refrain, that reminds me inevitably and interconnectedly with the refrain of abolitionism, when slavery was a thing in American society, then that should signal to us the sort of impossibility of separating the thing. How many more centuries are we going to put into a reconstructionist effort uh, based off of that type of, of logic, or I would say illogic? If we've already spent centuries trying to do that thing, trying to remove and disconnect the sort of origins, and we haven't been successful. We've made progress, certainly. I think that's indisputable, but we haven't been able to successfully do it in a way that lessens or eliminates systemic racism. Then I would argue that that effort is a misdirected and misguided effort. And that perhaps we should explore alternative ways of of both seeing race and also alternative ways for imagining our futures. 
And we don't have to look too far because if we look outside of the American context and we look at how race and racism operate elsewhere, that also should indicate to us that it's possible for race and racism to be a sort of non-factor, to be less violent. And while human societies have hierarchies across the board, we have hierarchies outside of racism, we have hierarchies in other spaces where it might not be racism, it might be a sort of ethnic hierarchy. Hierarchies exist everywhere, uh, and they would still exist without the persistence of racism, but that's also not a reason not to completely dismantle and destroy that thing called racism. And one other thing I wanted to say before I forget and before we get too far from Kendi's quote, in that quote, he talks about the sort of fallacy of of a post-racial aspiration, if you will. And in Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life, Barbara and Karen Fields talk about how the idea of post-racial or post-race is all is also the idea of post-racist, because the argument that race still exists and matters is often linked to the persistence and presence of racism, which again is evidence that race and racism are the same thing. If to be a post-racial society, we have to be post-racist. That's, Kendi is proving my point. He's giving us evidence to how they are the same thing. And again, we can operate, one can operate as a constructionist and still push for eliminativism. But right. operating as a constructionist and pushing only for reconstructionism, I feel like that's where that's where it becomes a problem because in upholding the category and, and arguing for its continuation, we are also unintentionally reifying the same thing that we're seeking to destroy, which is racism. And that's the biggest problem with, with Kennedy's argument in that moment, at least for me. Right. I mean, one of the difficulties I have with Kendi, probably a similar difficulty to what you have with Kendi, is that he seems to want two things. Ultimately, his end goal is very clearly a, a race abolitionism. He says it very explicitly, like, I want a world where to say that someone is black or white would be this, as trivial as saying that that, you know, someone has 1,000 hairs on their head versus 50. Like, it, just, it doesn't tell you anything. That's the world he wants. But his way of getting there seems odd, which is that we need to actually, because racism has inflicted so much damage, we need to strengthen the concept of race because that's the only way we can alleviate those inequalities. But then as soon as we do, race will cease to mean anything because we don't have racism anymore. So to your point, you don't have racism anymore. You don't have race anymore. I, I'm just so skeptical that if you strengthen the power of that 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 the that idea, that you'll ever just be able to trust it to just kind of like just disappear. After we strengthen it, it'll disappear. It's, it's I, illogical. I'm skeptical. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. And and our evidence is looking at what's happening um, in society with the argument and debate about CRT. Um, and even what has happened historically before CRT became a sort of headline for every media news outlet. Um, there, there is a lot of fodder that exists in society today that indicates to us this promotion and privileging and elevation and upholding of race is actually having unintended effects. 
And instead of just dismissing the sort of anti-CRT um, debates outright because we disagree, I think that we would do better to actually listen to, to what's at the core of what a lot of people are saying in, um, in a sort of, in the position against teaching this thing in secondary school and primary schools. Um, if ultimately to get more of what we want, what a, more of what society wants, there is an alternative way uh, that hasn't been explored yet in American society. We haven't explored this way of eliminativism or skepticism. We've only ever done a sort of constructionist or naturalist and reconstructionist um, practices. So what's holding us back? What do we have to lose in going uh, about yeah. it a certain, a different way? And that's a good question for people to ask, like, honestly, not just rhetorically. What What do we have to lose? I would like to hear... You know, like um, Kendi's argument, like, you know, what would even Kendi say to that? What, what would even Kendi say to that? What, would, what do we have to lose? I think he would say in some sense we have power to lose because, in, again, for him, what race means is that this, this, is this historical thing that's created injustice. So in order to remedy the injustice, you need the idea. You can't operate to remedy those injustices without that term. So I guess he would say if you get rid of race, you get rid of the power to solve racism, which sounds so deeply ironic. <laughs> like now that I say it, it sounds so deeply ironic. It is ironic. I want to say I can see his point, but his point is in a similar way to Mar Karl Marx's point, right? Karl Marx said the state is this fiction and we know it's a fiction. We know it's a construction, but it's caused so much damage that the only way to solve the damage that it caused is to give it the strength to remedy that. And then it will wither away. And I mean, of course, Marx was wrong. It never withered away. But yeah, I don't I, I don't know. Um, so maybe the next question is, well, how can, should, or does one practice something like racelessness? Because to, to Ibram Kendi's point, to other people's point, we live in a world where racialization is just a natural, seemingly natural part of what we do. I, have you ever tried, by the way, to n not use racialized language for like a yeah. week? Oh, have it's, you been able it's to do what it? I, it's what I practice now in my teachings. You very infrequently um, will you hear me use race terms or concepts in a sort of naturalist construction constructionist way. Like I really problematize. I use air quotes. If I'm writing, I use quotes or I use the word racialization or so-called. If I if there's an instance where I have to signal blackness, whiteness, or some kind of race category. Uh, but in general practice, I do my best to not. Like when you introduce Skyler right. as a yeah. black American, I would have if it, if I were doing the introduction, I would have simply said American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because like I, I know that um, you know Thomas Chatterton Williams again the book Unlearning Race he he's probably a fellow traveler in in the, in the race abolitionist space like even in his book he says at the very beginning he's like I tried to write this without racial terms I can't do it because this is part of the language that we speak so he says whenever you hear me say black white imagine quotes 
and I, he said, I didn't put them in because it, the readability issue is hard. You don't want quotations in every single sense. And, and to his point, I have tried also very mightily, but even the fact that you have to use quotes and use air quotes, but you still use the terms, right? We still all use the terms. Just kind of proves how, how infused this idea is in just our psyche. It's really hard, almost impossible not to use race terms. And I wonder, um, given, given that, like how, how does one practice something like racelessness? Is it more about the freedom to think of yourself as a person who transcends or is it about trying to make social change and say, Hey, I'm doing this. You should do this too. Um, for me, I think it, I think it's both. Um, but again, I, I'm in the habit of really practicing and being mindful of my language. This is a general practice for me, so it's not unique to the problem of racism. But when I find myself wanting to speak about racism, I use the word racism instead of defaulting to, to race. I'll give you an example. So a common term is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, I was... I, I ask myself, I ask students, what is it we're saying with the term white supremacy? What is it we're meaning? What's being, what's being signaled with the presence of white in that term, right? And they often say racism. Yeah. <laughs> racism is being signaled there because there's a way in which white and whiteness has become a metaphor for being racist or, or a yeah. metaphor for racism or a metaphor for having power, right? When we talk about white privilege. Yeah. So it's literally racism, speaking of power, is written into um, the language that we use when we're using language associated with race. And so if we can identify what it is we're trying to signal in moments where race, we, we might be inclined to include race, and then rename it and be more precise with our language, that's that's what I'm uh, practicing and that's what I encourage folks to, to try to do and to work on. And sometimes, I think oftentimes, race is present when the, the message would be just the same without race being pregnant or signaled, present mm-hmm. or signaled. And okay. Barbara and Karen Fields talk about trying this in their classrooms and at first students feel like there's an absence, right? If they're, if they're leaving race and race concepts out of their language or, or their writings, they feel there's an absence and they really struggle with it. And I think that's true for most of us in, in American society. It feels like there's something absent. We're missing something. I encourage folks to think about how that is part of our power. The language that we use is part of our power. At the outset, the the word American was meant to signal whiteness in a lot of ways, and it was applying to white people, right? Primarily, if not and, and, only. And also the flip side of that is immigrant groups like the, the ones I come from, Irish, Russian, you weren't afforded, you, when you were afforded American and the, the, the status of American, it was when you were afforded the status of white. It was the, those two, right? W- yes. w- went together, basically. Yes. James Baldwin and on, white and, and on Being White and Other Lies, he talks about this issue of immigration and choosing whiteness once you're in the context of the United States. And if, if, if American wasn't meant to include 
specific racialized groups of people, I see power in writing myself into that word without feeling the need to hyphenate or qualify or disclaim or, or anything like that, especially because I recognize racism as creating race. So the only thing I'm signaling if I include Black, for example, as I describe myself or in my writings, is the relationship to power ostensibly mm-hmm. is supposed to signal that, right? It's my relationship to and being in a racist society. That's primarily what that signals. And we often conflate the ideas of race with culture and ethnicity. And so it's supposed to also signal my cultural affiliations, um, which is problematic and probably we'll talk about it, especially as we get into Skylar. But when we come to dissect even those assertions and those beliefs, we come to figure out that actually there are racist, stereotypical, essentialized notions of what a racialized culture is supposed to be. And so that it doesn't actually benefit me to, to ascribe that those ideas to myself. So I'm very, um, becoming more and more practice at removing race from my language. And um, when I do use it, I make very clear, even if I use so-called or racialized, I make very clear that I'm pointing something out that needs to be noticed and observed, if nothing else, because I'm not naturalizing the idea of race. And without those sort of uh, disclaimers, the so-called, the bracketing in some way, I'm unintentionally upholding the same thing that I'm critiquing, right? And that I'm saying needs to be dismantled. And by putting in those qualifications and, and redirecting the language toward away from race toward racism, I think we'd actually be more successful in solving the problem of racism Mm. because the problem isn't race, except for the fact that racism creates it. Right. And right. So, so, so Barbara and Karen Fields, um, just to elaborate on the, the way they explain it, which I think is really helpful, is like when we talk about um, when we talk about race, we say something like, um, you know, race is sort of like why this person had to use this water fountain. It's because of their race. And they're like, no, it's because of racism. <laughs> Like, and it sounds like a trivial semantic difference, but it's not because you can't locate the problem in race because the only reason race would, would quote unquote cause anything is because we have a belief about it. Right. We, and we believe that into existence. Exactly. And the, the, ex- the example they give in the text is something like the sentence, the black Southerners were segregated because of their skin color. And they say to American ears, the sentence sounds perfectly natural. But what's absent from that sentence is the causality, is the causality of the white Southerners who are doing the segregating because of their racist ideas of black people. Instead, in the sentence, the cause of the problem, the cause of the segregation becomes the the skin color of the black Southerners. And when we look at out into the world and we look at um, news articles and media and how we talk about race and racism, this practice is still very prevalent to, to this day where uh, people say, I'm oppressed or I'm a victim of racism because I'm black or because my mm-hmm. ancestors were because I'm black. The problem literally to our imaginations becomes 
the people who are most negative, arguably most negatively impacted by the system of racism. And, you know, it's like some people might be inclined to say, oh, it's a matter of rhetoric or semantics, as you said, but ultimately we know that language informs thought and our thoughts inform our behaviors. And so how we talk about and how we think about these problems matters. And if we are forever and always talking about the problem of racism in terms of race, then we are misnaming the problem and misdirecting the discourse, which I think also, again, unintentionally keeps the thing going. And that's one of my biggest points of contentions with Kendi's argument overall. It's like by upholding the thing, then we're going to solve racism. No, we're, it's, it's really a distraction. And it's been proven to uphold and affirm people's biases about racialized groups of people too. Mm. Because you cannot, despite our best efforts, we have not been able to separate the stereotypical, essentialized, racist ideas associated with racialized groups from those racial categories. We haven't been able to do that separation and we're lying to ourselves if we're saying that we have or that we can because we haven't and we won't so long as we keep misnaming the problem and misdirecting the discourse. Um, A lot of that actually brings to mind. um, I don't know if you've read uh, a a book by it's a he's a demographer named Richard Alba. He wrote a book recently called The Great Demographic Illusion. Have you have you heard of that? I have not. It's a really good one. Um, I actually want to, I tried to get him on the show. It's just scheduling didn't work out. Um, and the great demographic illusion he points to is that in the next generation, according to the figures that he's seeing, about 10% of the American population will be some variation of quote biracial or multiracial people. And one of his points is this will be really interesting to see what this does to how we think about race, because if 10% of the people don't fit in the boxes that we've already established, is the meaning, wouldn't the meaning of those boxes deflate in some way? Um, You know, like if we ever got to a point where somehow like 10% or 15% of people didn't fit into male or female, like you would understand that those, those categories would kind of diminish in their value. Because like if you know, 15% of people, let's say, can't be described that way. So, and one of his criticisms against kind of um, critical race theory, and he has a very good understanding of, you know, it, it's not a Chris Rufo understanding of, of CRT. He says one of the problems he's always had with CRT is that they lack the conceptual language to deal with that 10%. There's, they tie themselves in knots trying to think about how to deal with people who are literally not black and not white in any conventional way. They'll they'll try to say, well, they're really black because they're they're going to be racialized black. Cool. Well, I have family members, for instance, who are quote unquote mixed, who are, I don't think anyone would racialize them any way at all. Like they're just, you look at them and they're like, there's no point in asking quote what you are. And in fact, you like, I start to realize that's a pretty insulting question to ask anyone, right? Like, let alone, you know, people who don't seem to have the typical physical markers that we would associate with any given racial group. So I, which actually brings in George Schuyler. I don't know if you, you know this, I'm sure you, you probably do, but he wrote a tract, a very short 50 page thing where he said the solution to the quote unquote race problem is allow people to, to mate how they will. 
just allow them to kind of mate with other people. And in a hundred years, you'll have a situation where it's just, he, he thought it would be fruitless to call someone white, black, or other, because we're always mongrel. Yeah, the whole the whole discourse of mixed and biracial and, and transracial and multiracial grinds my gears for a lot of reasons. Um, Skyler might have been one of the earliest folks to make that sort of argument, but you, of course, you have people in other contexts like Latin America making the same sort of suggestion, right? That ultimately. If we keep going down this track, it's actually a good thing. What's called miscegenation is actually a good thing. It's going to result in a mixture of people racially, ethnically, culturally, etc. So that there isn't a hierarchy associated with human beings. Um, my biggest point of contention is the fact that this idea of biracial or this idea of being mixed is rooted in the racist practice of racialization, right? When, mm -hmm. you, when you get to the American context and you start having our presidents doing calculations to figure out at what point does a person stop being black and you come, they come up with mulatto and then they come up with Octoroon and Octoroon, all, yeah, all of, yeah. and, and all of that, not because they were sincerely interested in figuring this out, right? At the time, having naturalist beliefs of race, but because they were wanting to figure out at what point do do we have to stop enslaving the offspring of enslaved women? Right. Yeah. And uh, ultimately the conclusion was never based on their calculations, because in American society, the one drop rule means that you, if you have one family member, it doesn't matter how far, how far away, how long ago you are deemed to be black. And uh, just even t saying those words out loud, I'm like, this is so clearly and obviously a racist idea and how we've continued to take the idea of being mixed or biracial or anything like that and applied it to human beings. To me, it's, it's almost mind boggling. I don't, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it, but then admittedly a year and a half ago, I probably was thinking in, in a similar way, right? Because I've gone along a journey, an intellectual and even emotional journey as it pertains to expanding my knowledge. And so once upon a time, I subscribe to these notions too, right? So I should probably make and, that clear. Yeah. Um, and so this idea, I would say, you know, if that statistic is right and 10% of the global population would be described or understood as being mixed. But I think he's talking about the American population. Only 10%? I thought uh, it was going to be a greater that, number. Yeah, I, I, I need to go back, but I think he said it would be a, around 10%. But I would have also thought it would have been a greater number. But, I mean, keeping in mind how hard this is to figure out for the reasons you just mentioned. Like, one of the things I tell my classes, and it blows their mind, is that if you are racialized as Black today, chances are real good. If you were a descendant of an American slave, you have a significant amount of quote-unquote white or European ancestry in you. And the reason that was is because miscegenation was particularly rampant, especially with black women who were enslaved, because if you were a black slave, uh, a, a female slave, you were essentially also by default, potentially a prostitute because anyone in that house who is a white male could have sex with you. And in fact, there was economic reasons why that would make sense. If you wanted to sell slaves, 
some families did this. If you wanted to sell slaves, you would have sex with the black female slaves that you had so that you could sell, literally you are selling your children. But that happened. People made money on it. Um, so I, go, to go back to that 10% statistic, one of the hard things to figure out is he's going based on, here's how people racially identify today. And here's what we think is going to happen in the future. But as we've already mentioned, how you racially identify today doesn't really tell you very much about your quote unquote lineage. Because a lot of people who identify as black today have European ancestry and a, a, a lesser number, but still significant enough to notice of people who would racialize as white have non-European ancestry. So it's really hard to figure out, like, what does 10% even mean then? Because right. we don't, current racial statistics don't tell us anything. And it's so nonsensical. I I would argue that white people don't actually exist by our own definitions. The idea that there is a pure race, a racially pure race to me is nonsensical. I think that they, they might exist in very, very, what, like, uh, in certain places in like, uh, Sweden or Scotland, you know, like Nordic people, like people who have been really isolated <laughs> from other societies, maybe whiteness exists in that way. If we're talking about purity and we're actually subscribing to the idea of race, but in, in the sense that we think about it now, especially in the American context, the idea that white people are here and they're the majority and that and that is supposed to signal to us that they are pure that they are racially pure i think that that idea itself is nonsensical in addition to the fact that as as you said uh based on the nonsensical one drop rule a lot of racialized black people also for all intents and purposes have other complicated genetic stories which again isn't race it's ethnicity but that's well it's also it's also one of the reasons why um what we call the black population has such a range of skin tones, but what we call the white population generally has a lesser range. It's because there's so much miscegenation or again, so-called miscegenation really did affect the American um, racialized black population much more, much differently than it affected the, the white population because of the one drop rule mixed with, the idea that you really could have sex with female black slaves at, at will. Yeah. Um, I look at people like Gene Toomer, Walter White, Charles Chestnut. Google those people, not you, Kevin, mm-hmm. your yeah, audience. If yeah. you're unfamiliar, Charles Chestnut, Gene Toomer, Walter White, just to name three, who really could be characters in Skylar's Black No More, uh, <laughs> who are racialized as black in this country. And they look, for all intents and purposes, like racialized white men. And you you would see them on the street and you would not blink, blink twice or, or double, you know, no. you wouldn't think about it twice. You would racialize them as white. And, and for you to know their blackness, they had to announce it. They had to make it very clear and transparent, right? Um, and that should, should be some sort of indication of Skylar's book turned reality of like, hey, if if these people can be walking around and you you can't know their blackness, you can't know their race uh, just by looking at them and they have to announce it, how nonsensical is the idea of race? And also, by the way, because this is Skylar's um, stick, and also, by the way, white people, you should be afraid because if you look at your neighbors and they look like you, 
you think they're white, but actually <laughs> they probably. This is one of Skylar's points in right? his book. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's 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 bring in Black No More because I feel like we've referenced it enough now that if people don't know what this book is, um, we should probably just outline kind of the plot and what what Skylar's purpose was with this book. Um, I'll, I'll let you tell tell this um, because uh, yeah. It, so let's let's talk about what Skylar's book is. Black No More. It's his kind of the only book of his that's really in print right now. What the plot was and what in the world he's trying to do with this. So the short explanation is Black No More is a book published in 1931. So toward the end of the Harlem Renaissance, as most scholars would agree. And it's the story of a scientist who creates this process, procedure to turn racialized black people into racialized white people, at least phenotypically, biologically, right? And he- It wasn't genotypically, and that is actually important to the end of the plot, which we won't give away, but the genotype remains the same. The phenotype doesn't, and that that was significant. Yes. And so the scientist promotes the procedures. People come from, you know, far away to, I want to say it's, it's in New York city uh, Mm -hmm. to do the procedure. He's making bukus of money on it. And um, you have some, some characters who are deeply conflicted about the following through the procedure, but they're having such economic hardship and difficulties um, in the climate of that day that they decide ultimately for the betterment of themselves to achieve a certain level of success. And particularly as it is connected to wealth, that this is a procedure that they're going to do. And so it, it ends up, so many racialized black people end up being turned to look white, that it ends up creating a um, havoc. It's like, it's chaos because people don't know anymore who's black and who's white simply by looking um, at a person. And I can't actually remember how the book, I can't remember how the book ends. I just remember that that's the plot. Um, I won't won't give away the ending for people who want to read it, (laughs) but I can tell you this might jog memory. There's a baby involved and then there's some confusion. Yes. So the, the main character who has um, difficulty, we we don't, we don't want to give it away, but yeah. Yeah. There's a character who has difficulty deciding, you know, to go through it or, or not lives as a white man and then has a baby and then worries about the outcome of of if he's going to be given away and discovered because of the baby so that's like the genesis of it um yeah and it's very satire it's very i i put him along the lines of contemporary writer percival everett in terms of the tone and the sort of like nonsensical (laughs) treatment of of ideas that are taken very seriously of course or for tv viewers i think probably the closest analogy really would be south park south park like all of his columns read as almost like these south park satires i also liken him to dave Chappelle for any um people who like comedy (laughs) yeah yeah sure yeah it's I mean, connecting this idea, what, the reason I reached out to you or the reason we connected on the YouTube comments was because when you were talking on Britney's show, I was like, I mean, she's talking about ideas that really sound like something that George Schuyler would have, have been a very vocal advocate for because he was not only an abolitionist, but he was a skeptical abolitionist. He said, I think in some of his works, races at best to superstition. Mm. And his idea, like in this novel was to say, okay, 
I'm going to create a world that everyone says they want, which is race will disappear, right? I'm going to create this world in this fictional universe, and I'm going to show you how badly all of you folks who say you want race to go away desperately need race to make sense of your world. Mm. And he's not saying it in the sense of like, I want to show why race is so important, but he's doing it to say, look at the hell (laughs) that your need for race creates in this fictional world. Look at the damage that it does to everybody involved, including like what he attacked W.B. Du Bois Mm -hmm. in the book. He had a character that was W.B. Du Bois and and said, look how stupid this guy (laughs) seems to appear. He wants race to go away, but he, his entire profession depends on, you know, the, the national association for the advancement of colored people. Well, great. When you don't have colored people, you you realize your business model falls apart. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so brilliant because it's, it's, it's this tragedy and you're just watching it unfold Mm -hmm. and you want to shake all the characters and say, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. And the ideas that he um, illustrates in that book are very similar to the ideas that are espoused throughout the Harlem Renaissance and even before through books like Jesse Fawcett's, um, Jesse Redmond Fawcett's comedy American style, which is anything Mm. but comedic. Right. Um, And so I think it's interesting how he gets treated. I mean, Fawcett has her own history of also being marginalized and excluded to a certain extent and misunderstood. Um, I don't know that she was identified as being conservative. I'm not sure. But I say that to say even James Weldon Johnson's autobiography of an ex-colored man has similar ideas. This idea of the the idea of race, yes, but also as it's interconnected to the practice of racism, such that to be a racialized white person to pass in that novel is to not have any burden or culpability as it pertains to racial uplift or solving racism. And you see these fictional characters playing, living out their lives, making a decision about their race based on that idea alone. As a racialized Black person, I have to work to help uplift my people, right? And I have to, with that comes a necessary amount of race pride. And it's my obligation, it's my responsibility, it's my duty to help overcome racism. But if I choose whiteness, if I choose to pass, then all of a sudden I can't do those things. And (laughs) traditionally, those stories, typically called passing stories, right, Mm -hmm. um, are are viewed as, as... as more realistic than I think the authors might have intended. And we kind of put authors intent aside, but we treat the characters who pass even for a moment as morally wrong and corrupt. And we treat the ones who embrace their blackness and announce their blackness in every space as, as doing the right thing. And I think it's ironic because it has put since the beginning, right? the beginning, since the beginning, it's put the burden and responsibility and the blame on the race, arguably most negatively impacted by racism. So that right, the pro- you're not doing enough for your people. You're not doing for, enough your, for your people. people. And so then racialized white people are just given a free pass almost. It, it's, it's to me interesting and paradoxical, the kinds of ideas that are espoused that and the kinds of ideas that Skylar is exploring in Black No More, because he really is showing how regardless of where you are on this racial or I would argue racist spectrum, you, you 
people benefit from the, the system and the practice of racism, from upholding the same thing they are oftentimes fighting against. And you can see by that assessment why he was <laughs> problematic, but for some people, you know, why he was so controversial, because he's pointing to the likes of Du Bois and saying, you're part of the problem. You're, you're encouraging this. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote another um, book that's uh, like his others are out of print um, called uh, Slaves Today, which I think um, I had uh, floated a copy, I think, to you. Um, and I, I don't know if you, you read that one yet, but it's it's a book of, of kind of fictional journalism. He Schuyler was assigned by the newspaper he was working with at the time to go to the country of Liberia in Africa, where there was concern over a developing slave trade. And this was sort of a, um, we would say it was kind of a, I guess in, in racial terms, a black on black slave trade. This was a, a, a slave trade where black people were owning other black people. And he wrote this book of fictional, like it was journalism, but it was fictional. He, he fictionalized a lot of stuff, but apparently it was based on his notes. And I mean, this book got him into so much trouble because he looked like he was basically making fun of Liberians, but he did it for a reason. And his reason was just like, we don't want to, um, just like, you know, white racial pride is just nasty and stupid. And he always thought that black racial pride, he thought was also nasty and stupid. And he says, black people are not, they're not worse than other people, but they're not better than other people that look, they can own slaves too. And that got him in so much trouble because it just sounds today like a conservative talking point of look, look, there's black on black crime. Right. And, you know, and I, I, I always cringe when I see those, those talks because I can tell what their agenda usually is. Um, <laughs> but it was just genius the way he did it. Uh, uh, but again, he's, he's almost destined to be misunderstood mm. because like, how dare you go over to a country in Africa and, and make fun of a slave trade? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he had a purpose. I don't know if it translated well. <laughs> it didn't. But if we can hold our feet to the fire and, um, you know, approach his work with as much good faith as possible, I feel like we can come away with something fruitful. One of his first works, uh, the essay, The Negro Art Hokum, mm. is what. That, that's where he got in trouble with Langston Hughes, right? And that was a response to Hughes. Yeah. Hughes, Hughes and Du Bois responded to him. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah the yeah, inverse. Yeah. And so with with that text, that's one of the earliest texts that we have of Schuyler. Um, it's a text that still gets him into a lot of trouble. I mean, even the title sort of indicates the, what what's at play here. But one thing I took away from, from this first introduction to Schuyler was reading that essay. One thing I took away was that... What's at stake for Hughes and Du Bois and, you know, almost everyone else nowadays would say Kendi is also what's at stake for Skyler. And I think that that's why he approached the topic at, with such um, passion as he did. And if we can, if we can look back his tone at some, at some points, points, if we can look beyond the sort of satirical nature of his work, to see what's at the core and what's at stake for Schuyler. In that essay, he talks about how 
the people who are promoting and priv privileging this idea of race are also intentionally or unintentionally promoting the idea of and insisting on the idea of racial difference, which he says is inevitably connected to the promotion of racist difference, right? That you cannot, one cannot in that day and age, and I would argue that remains true today, one cannot promote the idea of racial difference and not also be promoting the hierarchy that comes with, with the idea of the difference as perceived. So when he's saying things like, there's no such thing as Negro art or black art, except for in certain places in Africa, that the Negro, Negro American or black American is the same as the racialized white American. When he's saying those things straight from the text, he's, he's saying it because number one, he believes it. That's how he thinks. Right. But he's saying it because he also recognizes what's at stake with the promotion and privileging of this idea of race and the idea of blackness. And whether you agree or you disagree, he's not saying it to be problematic or to, you know, play devil's advocate or, or he's, and he's not saying it because he's racist or white supremacist or anti-black. He sees race and racialization and the practice of it in a very particular lens with a certain type of knowledge. And he comes to the opposite conclusion of some of the other people of his time. Um, and instead of keeping it to himself, he shares those ideas because for him, it is a matter of life or death. At that time we have, you know, lynching is very prominent. We have Jim Crow. We have all- and he and we should point out uh, the significance. He was a, a fairly dark skinned yes. person who always, even though he didn't have race pride, he did write several essays of, of uh, the pride of dark skin. Yes. And he also married a white woman and had a, a, a child who happened to become very visible for being a piano virtuoso. All of those things together just add to the point that things like lynching were very real Oh my possibility because he was conspicuous. Yes. And he experienced the violence of racism when he was 17. He enlisted in the army. He was promoted to the rank of uh, first lieutenant. And when he was getting his, now this is purported. I would love to see if this is in his autobiography, which I have yet to read, but thank you for sending it to me. Uh, he supposedly got his shoes shined when he was in Hawaii and a Greek immigrant refused to shine his shoes because of the darkness of his skin color. And so he went AWOL. It, it troubled him and traumatized him as such that it changed the trajectory in the course of his life. So Skyler knew what was at stake. And it was for all of those reasons that he promoted his own ideas and wasn't shy about, about sharing it. I also think, too, that it's a disservice to traditionally he's sort of positioned in a way that he's against ideologically against the likes of Du Bois, Hughes, but and also Elaine Locke. But when we look at some of Elaine Locke's philosophies of race, which went out of print and then resurfaced in the 90s, yeah. um, we see that he was very much aligned to the likes of Locke. Um, than people would have us believe, which I think is is a meaningful connection to make because Locke is not identified as conservative, right? And um, Locke is upheld in a particular way in the American imagination as a promoter of race privilege and race pride and that sort of thing. And yet his philosophies of race are very much aligned with Schuyler. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, <clears throat> Schuyler did drift towards the conservative direction, and he was called conservative partly because he was. His his autobiography is called Black and Conservative. <laughs> um, but if you were to ask Schuyler why you why he became conservative, I mean, first of all, he was anti-communist, and I would argue all of the wrong ways, all the ways that kind of make people kind of like a John Birch Society uh, person. But you would probably say, he would say something like, Every single attempt by the left of, of center to solve the quote unquote race problem is itself racist. So he drifted rightward because in almost an irony, it, at least the right wing said, well, let's, let's not do anything about race. And in some ways for Schuyler, that was preferable, even though he did disagree publicly with like the let's not do anything approach. Um, like he was a very vocal activist for the importance of uh, developing black business and black economies, not because he believed that there was something different about black people like Marcus Garvey did, but because he's like, look, white people are not going to do it for us. And if we expect them to, we're perpetuating racism. We have to do it in some sense on our own. But of course, that became a sort of conservative position. Mm hmm. Which is still ironic to me, though, because if you look at the Black Panthers and Stokely Carmichael, they they said that, too. Mm. But they're usually I mean, Malcolm X was a big proponent of. In fact, he uh, Skyler and Malcolm X agreed on those things very publicly in public forums, like the importance of black business, the importance of a black economy. But somehow Skyler became a conservative and was labeled as such. And Malcolm X never. Like you don't see people saying Malcolm X should be seen as a conservative. Yeah. It's, and that's important to draw out this because I think traditionally the idea of what it means to be conservative and the sort of significance that's ascribed to that when it comes to talking about figures like Skylar is this idea that one is in some ways against racialized black people, right? Even if one is racialized as black themselves by society right we would call that person an uncle tom right i mean wouldn't that be the charge yes be like oh you're racialized as black but you're speaking something that could do damage right because at all turns one is not supposed to do harm to racialized black people if one is racialized as black and so it's important to draw out the all the work that he did do in racialized black communities or in, in that sort of aspect of his work and his ideas, because at once he's working to dismantle and, uh, and yes, eliminate the idea of race and rightfully so I would argue, but that didn't stop him from doing the type of activism or the type of activist work that we would ascribe to people on the left more often than not. We just kind of presume yeah. it's there, right? It's just interesting how that historically works out. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm like, X yeah. is a good figure to talk about in relation to Schuyler because at the end of Malcolm X's autobiography, which was written by Alex Haley, you see the shift in Malcolm X's own philosophy of race. Um, at the outside of his life, he's really a constructionist, recon reconstructionist, at the end of his life, there's skepticism and eliminativism. And he starts talking about how everyone is, is, is brother. Everyone is related. He talks about humanity, his language, his rhetoric, his approach, all of it changes right before he's assassinated. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, 
I, I start to see the sort of intellectual journey for Malcolm X as being connected, even if loosely, to the likes of Skyler. Um, and it's an important connection to make because I think when people think about Malcolm X or they think about the Black Panther Party, I think there's a, currently a very limited understanding or idea of what that means and what and what it meant and what those figures are are expressing and even with the um documentary it's not a documentary the the fictional account of fred hampton's life and Mm -hmm. and and murder he's a he's a member of the black panther party and he works with the black panther party and he's doing things for the people which you yeah. see in the movie, the people isn't black people. It's not, it includes yeah. black people, right? But it's not just racialized black people. It's it's the people, everyone. It's really a class, you know, effort on, yeah. on his part. So, so one of the things that I like to point out while we're on this uh, topic is to skeptics of white supremacy um, is that here's how I know there's, there's white supremacy kind of baked in to American history. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wanted assimilation slash integration. He was assassinated and surveilled mercilessly by the FBI as an enemy. (laughs) The Black Panther Party said, well, if you don't want us to integrate, we'll do it ourselves and we'll help people ourselves. For that, they were surveilled mercilessly in several assassinations. So if you didn't want Black people to assimilate and you didn't want Black people to do it on their own, what did you want? you wanted the established racial order Mm -hmm. and both of those were threats to the established racial order from these different positions. So really what you wanted was white supremacy and neither side would give it to you. That's the way I, 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 uh, I like to kind of think of it. Absolutely. I don't think it's an accident. And I don't think that it's an accident that the likes of Skyler, the the sort of perspective that he's um, coming from the, the way that Malcolm X was thinking toward the end of his life. Um, I don't think that it's an accident that their ideas, you know, their works went out of print, you know, have for, for some part been recovered and reestablished, but also not right. Are not taught in a, in a nuanced way. They're taught in a very, let's uphold the racial hierarchy and the idea of race way. I don't think it's an accident. Um, and I yeah. like to point that out myself because what does that mean? Like we can derive some amount of meaning from that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, I'm curious as to how you came across George Schuyler because I came across his work thanks to uh, it was 2015. It was thanks to, I was thinking about the Rachel Dolezal situation, <laughs> right? So those who don't know, Rachel Dolezal was, um, head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington, and a journalist for sure, assuredly racist reasons, uh, confronted her with this with, with uh, a, a discovery that he made that she was actually uh, white. Uh, I say actually white, obviously, with the appropriate um, caution. Um, she had to defend herself, and the, the, the entire country became mad at her, the right wing, because she lied about something that they thought was important, which was her racial background and the left because she was trying to appropriate an identity that they thought wasn't hers, although they couldn't really explain why that wasn't an identity she could appropriate. Um, 
And it just kind of blew my mind how everyone seemed so muddled in the conversation. I could not get angry at her. I was like, I don't think she lied about anything significant, but I also don't think that, you know, unless you think of race as a biological thing, which the left didn't want to do, you can't really say she can't appropriate that identity. Um, and anyway, I was doing some research in like on racial passing, just the history of it. And George Schuyler's Black No More came up <laughs> and I read it and just my jaw dropped. Um, because obviously it's the ultimate fictionalized story of what happens when racial passing, quote unquote, is now possible on a large scale and the haywire mm. that goes there. Um, so that's how I came came to his work. I, I, I'd love to hear the story of, of how you came to it. Yeah. So the Dole's all... Um incident we'll call it an incident or controversy it was definitely an incident. is definitely is definitely tied to what i was saying earlier about in the fiction we see how a person if they if they can if they have the ability to pass as a racialized white person then that means that they are disconnected from the responsibility and burden of racial uplift and solving racism that's in the fictional world dolezal this this tracks true when we think about people like Dolezal, who's not the first or the last person to be discovered in this way. Fairly recently, there was that, wasn't there a Georgetown professor or something who was discovered mm -hmm. to have said that she's black and then her ancestry is like, no, 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 you're not black. There's another graduate student who was discovered to have claimed uh, a Latinx lineage and based her research on that, I think. And then she was found to have been kind of fabricating that. Oh my goodness. I listen, I feel like, I feel like we would do well, we being society would do well to really analyze and consider why people get to a place where they feel like they have to say that they are a particular thing in order to do a particular type of work. Because yeah. it strikes me that Dolezal is a prime example of believing truly believing that to do the type of activism work that she was doing through the NAACP, she had to be black or to be taken seriously in that work. Right. Um, I think that that's a sort of interesting question that, that could be proof proven fruitful if we went down that path, but instead she received the sort of shaming that she received received and she's gone into, you know, oblivion or obscurity in, in some ways. Um, yeah, it's well, I also think the converse, um, and one of the reasons I love Schuyler's novel and I loved it then and I love it now so much is that if racial passing is possible, that right there should both tell you the reality of racism because people, like you said, think they have to pass and the absurdity of race because yeah. just like, okay, so one part of Schuyler's novel, um, one of the points he's making is this white supremacist group is terrified because they can no longer tell who's black and who's white and they hire wasn't it someone to take care of all their financials and business and the person did a really good job and they came into the organization and lo and behold, we, the reader know that that person is actually a, a former black person who, right. who became white. Right. So it's like, okay, so if, if a person can pass and become the head of the NAACP or get a job that's only reserved for white people, even though they're biologically supposedly black, Shouldn't that tell you that your racial categorizations are a little bit off? Because clearly the person that you thought was white and had all the virtues of a white person, quote unquote, really wasn't. It should. That... <laughs> it should, Kevin. It should. 
But I, unfortunately, I feel like more often than not, it doesn't. And that's one of my contentions with a constructionist position. While one can be a constructionist eliminativist, I contend that constructionists still have a, a tradition of treating race as though it is biological, as though it is based in phenotype and DNA and ancestry and all of those things. And one can say, well, it's a social construction based on the sort of natural understanding or expectation of race, but I still deem that sort of uh, treatment of race as a social construction as a, being very problematic and, and unintentionally upholding the same thing it's supposed to be um, critiquing. Well, I realized that I realized that exactly what you said when during the Rachel Dolezal situation, I'm talking to my friends who are on the political left and saying, explain to me why this is not really her identity. Right. And they always went back to either she wasn't born black or she doesn't have a black lineage. Right. I'm like, but I thought that as a social constructionist, that's what you said was off limits. Right. And they just couldn't explain it in a way anyway. Right. It's it's complicated, but it needn't be as complicated as, as we tend to make it. Um, I came across Skyler as a PhD student at Howard University. Um, I was in an early African-American literature class and um, his Negro art hokum essay was in the Norton Anthology of African-American Literature. And it was assigned as one of the readings in conjunction with uh, Hughes, Locke, and Du Bois. And yeah. so that's how I first came across him. And I've, I've done extensive coursework in African-American literature and studies as a, both as an undergraduate and as a master's student. And I hadn't come across Schuyler. So that was the first time that I really mm. came to know of him. And that was just a few years ago. And at that, at that point, you alluded earlier that like a, a few years ago, you were in a kind of a different headspace than than you are now. It, when you read the Negro Art Hokum, which argues that there's basically no such thing as a distinctly black art, uh, did it? How did you receive it? Was it like a curiosity? Did it kind of like make you angry? Did it? Were you like, wow, this is, yeah, okay. Yeah, I I have always viewed myself as thinking outside of the box. I feel so cliche saying it. I feel like most people identify themselves as thinking outside of the box and they aren't really. <laughs> uh, but I've always been the sort of outsider voice in any space that I'm in. And I'm always complicating things, not even intentionally, it's just how I see the world and how I see things have, has traditionally been more nuanced and complicated. And so I, I was used to being in the classrooms at Howard and complicating things. Um, um, and really trying to express my views, test my views and all of that, because I'm trying to expand my knowledge, right? That's what, hopefully that's why we are getting higher education in the first place. So I found myself um, really jiving with a lot of what he was saying and agreeing and, um, also recognizing pretty readily the, why he would get the pushback that he gets, Right. Um, that he got even within that classroom space. Easy to recognize why, but also still not dismissing what he's saying. Because I was like, yeah. And at, at the time that I would have taken that class, it was probably the same semester that I 
did my first iteration of what I now call the theory of racistness, but at the time it was my theory of albinism. It's inspired by Barbara Chase. The language is inspired by Barbara Chase Rabot's sculpture and poem, The Albino. And what I was being communicated to me through those two texts, we'll call the sculpture text, and in conjunction with all that had been communicated to me through African-American literature, also the study of the practices of the field itself was all sort of culminated in my theory of albinism and my first iteration of it, which was around the, the same semester that I first was uh, introduced to Schuyler. And then the, the ball was rolling after that even more because I was like, oh, there are other people who are explicitly, not just through fiction, but who are explicitly saying these kinds of ideas or and unabashedly so. And that was, I don't want to ascribe too much, a disproportionate amount of weight to the power that that had, but my exposure to him definitely helped in my journey toward my own self-articulation of my ideas and my own um, finding of other figures who are also controversial in some ways, like Locke's uh, philosophies. My my mentor at, How at Howard is the chair of the philosophy department, and he's a Locke scholar. So he opened the door to me for all of the philosophies of race. He identified himself as a constructionist eliminativist, and that was the first time I'm hearing the language, but also the first time I'm meeting a person who's agreeing with eliminativism in real life, you know, and, yeah. um, and that made me want to know more about Skylar. That's why I read Black No More as part of my dissertation track. Um, and I'm at a point now where, you know, the book is coming, like there's going to be a book about Skylar, uh, some other figures too, like Zora Neale Hurston. Nice. Um, but yeah, I just, I've been an advocate. Anything anything that can complicate notions that we tend to take for granted as true. I feel like that's where Skylar fits in. And I feel like that's a necessary part of education. It's just interesting how the landscape has changed. Um, Cause we were talking before the podcast. Um, you, you had mentioned that there are, there were other people saying these things about eliminativism and we just really need to get rid of this just nasty idea. And, it, you know, even the 80s and 90s, um, you know, one of the big cultural theorists that I mentioned before the podcast is Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy is another one. They, these were these two were considered on the vanguard. And then Homi Baba was saying similar yes. things about like basically the, the idea that everyone is hybrid enough to the point where the categories that try to erase hybridity are, are a problem. And we really need to think about retiring some of these categories and that was in the eighties and nineties and they were on the Vanguard. And if you read them today and you ask people who wrote this, they would say, Oh, it's probably, you know, someone like Coleman Hughes, or someone who works at the Manhattan Institute. It's like, wow. I mean, how the tables have turned in, in, in 30, 40 years. It's what used to be the Vanguard is now considered kind of the, the conservative taboo position. How do you, by the way, um, I'm sure you've, been associated with like kind of, Oh, you, you must be a sort of like conservative person. And I know you said before the podcast, you, you work pretty hard not to kind of divulge like politically where you stand because it's not really relevant. Um, but again, you can identify and, and not disclose whatever you want, but other people are going to try to do the guessing for you. Oh, <laughs> well, we'll guess. How do you, 
if you at all try to distance yourself from like, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we should just ignore race because clearly you're, you're not saying we should just ignore. So how do you distance yourself from that? Distance myself from what? Distance yourself from that kind of, oh, you're just given that conservative position of we should just stop talking about, you know, uh, racism at all because it's really not really a problem. Yeah. So you by, must be saying what, you know, what, what those folks are saying. By saying first and foremost that racism is a problem and that my argument to undo race and my promotion of those ideas and, and expanding our knowledge in those ways is because of my intent to help solve the problem of racism. And if people hear that and they still think what they want to think and run in the other direction, which, which can and does happen, then that's, that's on them, right? It, ultimately, it's, it's less my goal to persuade people to come over to my side. It's more my goal to educate. And I think oftentimes, because I approach it that way, in my practices of educating people, people are often persuaded, right? But you're going to have a small minority of people who aren't. And that's okay because I myself didn't even embrace my ideas until, I don't know, within the last six months of my dissertation writing process. Um, it was hard. It was a journey for me because I was, although I thought outside of the box and I often found myself in what I identify as a sort of gray area of discourse, I still racialized myself as a black woman. I, I, looked with a certain amount of pride in that fact. And it was hard for me, the idea, because my knowledge was expanding, it was hard for me, the idea of not attaching that to myself and my identity, because I saw it as connected. And it took a lot of learning and a lot of time and a lot of tears even to finally come to the conclusion that I'm not crazy. You know, that the that the facts, the, the research that I've done, that everything that has come across my table is um, confirming for me that my analysis and my conclusions are correct. I'm not I'm not. In other words, I'm not wrong. And, you know, if people people will be people and they'll choose to take what I'm saying and and think of it what they will. But I found that most people most people with my assertion that the undoing of race is to undo racism signals to them, oh, okay, even if I do identify her as being conservative, right? then I still see value in what she's saying because she's not one of those conservatives, right? The yeah, question that, I get is, a... how is this different from colorblindness? That's a question I get all the time, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. conflated with yeah. conservatism. And I tell people, well, this is how it's different, right? And and also, this is how it's similar. Uh, you right. Know. It's, yeah, it's a Venn diagram with a significant amount of overlap, but enough important uh, difference. Well, it's because, and the, part of the reason I ask is because your position does not strike me as terribly different from that of Thomas Chatterton Williams, who, if you re, if you read his book, it's it's pretty intricate. He's not saying colorblindness in any traditional sense. But it seems to me like when I look at public dialogue, he says all the time, like, I'm not a black conservative. I'm not. I'm for reparations. I'm literally for reparations. 
but he seems all the time to be kind of maligned as a black conservative. Yeah. And it's like his, his protest doesn't mean anything. And if, when I read his book, I don't see a conservative there, Yeah, but other people do. I, I can understand. I, one thing I'm trying to get myself away from is feeling like I have to say outright, I'm not conservative because I feel once like you do, I'm, you lose. Yeah. And I, and I, it's a distraction and I feel like it's, um, I feel like it's buying into the ideas that again, I'm really li- liberating myself from even. Um, and and once we're able to liberate ourselves from what I call racialist ideology, I find it's that much easier to liberate ourselves from other binaries that exist in Western world, like this idea of conservative and liberal, because one can, again, I th- in real the real world, there's overlap between with you identify as conservative or if you identify as progressive, you're still going to have overlaps with the person on the other side of the aisle right? With the other, your other, the us versus them mentality, you still have overlap. And so I find that my rejection of the, of, of that label is also signaling and suggesting my complete, um, my complete opposition to what some people who, who do identify themselves as conservatives say, which is Mm -hmm. not my, which is not my number one, it's not my intent. And also just based on the categorization. And also it's not factual because there are things that some conservatives can say that I might agree with because they're human beings and they have, you know, our thought processes and stuff aren't limited to binaries and categories. Right. Yeah. So I've tried, I I'm working, I, I will say I at first had the sort of knee jerk reaction as um, Thomas Chatterson Williams and it feeling the need to let people know, no, no, no. I'm not conservative, right? But I'm working on not having that reaction because I feel like it actually goes against my own beliefs about the world and about these labels and things like that. And maybe I can be an inspiration, maybe in doing that and in shifting away from feeling like I have to say, oh, no, no, I'm not that. Maybe I can be an inspiration and a model for how other people can operate in their lives. You know, listen listen to my ideas and and see their worth and grapple with them based on what I'm saying in my ideas, not on how yeah. you want to categorize them. Yeah. And in, in some ways uh, it might be good to close with it. It sounds to me like what you're saying is you could end up hopefully maybe doing for other people, what someone like George Schuyler did for you. Like the large majority of people that, that, that Schuyler wrote to ended up not really buying his argument, whether that because they misunderstood it or whatever, but the writing is there. And like, if someone discovers it, they they say what you said earlier, which is, oh, there are other people who think in these ways. There are people who think that these categorizations just don't really serve any good purpose and can't serve a good purpose. So like, yeah, even if you don't, you know, convince the whole audience, that's, that's not really the point. The point is to get the word out enough that it's available for people to see if or when they get to that position. And now they can say, oh, here's someone else who's who's thinking in that sort of way. I mean, that is sort of what Thomas Chatterton Williams says in the, towards the end of his book when he talks about the practicality of, of racelessness, or as he would put it, race abolition. He's like, look, even if you don't change other people's minds, the fact that you're willing to do it and put out that you're willing to do it is is enough that it might get other people thinking about it. Mm. 
And then once a, if, if, if a critical mass is reached, the more people people see doing it, the more comfortable they would be doing it. Precisely. Right. So, Because I get the sense, I talk to a lot of people between my theory of racelessness business and teaching. Um, and I, I do work and, you, and your podcast and my podcast and I do work for nonprofits and, and the Mississippi Delta. I talk to a lot of people and I get the sense that a lot of people are inclined to lean towards skepticism and eliminativism, but they're afraid. They're afraid of being on the wrong side of the topic, right? Of the discourse. They're afraid of falling into the trap of being the thing that they're trying to resist being, which is racist. Um, and in that way, when you're able to walk people along a particular journey, expand their knowledge, ex open the door to them for alternative voices or heterodox ways of thinking and thought, it's, it's liberating it, and it helps people ease their fear a little bit so that they ultimately, more often than not, I found, come to conclude that, yes, I am actually a skeptic and I'm an eliminativist, or I'm a constructionist and I'm an eliminativist, and here are the reasons why. And um, it gives me hope. It gives me hope that <laughs> gives me hope that things can and will and are changing because more people than not are open to doing things differently. And if, right. if we convince ourselves, like Kendi tries to convince us and seems convinced himself that people aren't willing to change or do things differently, then we just keep keep ourselves in the quagmire, right? Yeah, well, it goes right back to Thomas Chatterton Williams' idea earlier of like, this is a game theory sort of thing. Everyone wants to escape it, but as long as they're convinced that no one else is going to escape it, they'll impose it on themselves. So you have a, this weird thing where everyone wants to get out, but no one feels like they can get out right. because they're, they don't think their neighbor's going to get out. Right. Well, so we should probably, uh, we should probably cut it here. I hope we can do some more discussions. I feel like I could, we could talk about this for, for a good long while, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll stop it here because the, the, we're already getting to a, a good long point, but um, I hope to talk to you at, at some point soon. Thanks Kevin. The yeah. feeling's mutual. <laughs>